a very important show to me for a number of reasons. Uh, this is a live call-in show, and I'll give you the number that you can call to talk on the air if you have opinions about what we're talking about or anything else. Really excited about tonight's show for a few reasons. First and foremost, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about something that is greatly misunderstood in the Christian as well as the LDS Church. Second, our show is, as I mentioned, being received all over by the internet because of my friend Kevin Kennington putting it online. And so people are watching it all over the world and we're really grateful for the correspondence there. And finally, I have a few guests that I'd like to introduce. It's their first uh, visit to uh, Heart of the Matter. And it's my daughter, Delaney, and my wife, Mary. Give a wave, Mary and Delaney. Uh, by the way, Ma Mary is the one on the right hand, and Delaney is the one on my left. So we welcome them, and let's begin, if we can, with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We're grateful for all that you do for us. We're grateful for this time on the air, and we pray that your blessings will be upon this message, upon the people who work and volunteer here at the station, and upon all the viewers whether they be uh, uh, now on the rebroadcast or on the internet, that they will hear the words that we're talking about and be inspired, drawn closer to you and not to anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you are familiar with what a recipe is. The basic recipe for bread is flour, yeast, shortening, and salt. If a main ingredient for bread is left out or substituted, we not only have something incomplete and possibly offensive, we no longer have bread. Imagine, for example, that in place of flour, I use gum powder in the recipe for bread, or that I, instead of shortening, I use garlic paste. The result would be offensive and it would be non-bread. Sometimes altered recipes even produce a beautiful looking product but when we eat it, we discover that it's disgusting and that it is nothing like what we thought it would be based on its appearance. Appearance is only part of what makes a recipe viable. I often look, look at things in terms of recipes. Humor has recipes. Happiness has recipes. Beauty and success all have recipes. It doesn't matter if it's a bouquet of flowers or if it's a marriage, or if it's a young child, they all are a composite of ingredients. And they all are a recipe, as it were, as we interact with them and understand them. Just as there are hundreds, or if not thousands, of recipes for bread around the world, there are also thousands of recipes of what man has called religion. Some religions' recipes include Jesus, but many others do not. Some are based on rules and rituals, some are based, believe it or not, in pleasures, and some are based in, in uh, sacrificial obedience. Some religions say that their recipe is the only recipe God will eat. Interesting, the religion recipe has not, does not always include even God or Jesus, as I said. Many religions are outwardly attractive, with wonderful buildings and manicured gardens and f nice flower beds, but in reality produce hollow individuals spiritually. Several years ago, my younger brother and my dad decided we were going to try our hand at farming, if you can believe it. And we tried to raise raspberries in the Hemet Valley in Southern California. And as you drove to get to this piece of farmland, we went by uh, um, L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology area. And this was a built-up, highly funded, very manicured, beautiful place. We watched over a course of a year and a half or two years as they built a studio out of the best materials, great architecture. It was very impressive. But did their money and the appearance of the buildings make for a spiritually reliable religion? What ingredients are there to a church that God would approve of? What are the important ingredients to his recipe? Most of you know that I personally don't have much taste or whatever for organized religion. It's just like I don't have much appreciation for sushimi, which is raw fish. I don't think eating raw, raw fish is wrong or evil, and I respect a person's right to eat and enjoy raw fish. 
but I've never developed a liking for it. And I know from personal experience that people can get awfully sick from eating it if it isn't properly prepared or presented right. To me, the risk of eating sashimi far outweigh the reward. And there are just too many other options of qualitative nourishment available when it comes to dining out. In fact, I'd rather go to the ocean myself or to a river and catch a salmon and cook it on an open fire and eat it that way, prepared the way God intended me to eat it from the beginning, than to have it packaged and processed back to me or even cooked in a restaurant. I prefer the, 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 first, the first way. But today's world, there's not many viable alternatives to eating salmon, and so we go to a restaurant or we do what we can and we're, we're kind of locked in. I've learned to adapt. I've learned to let others catch my fish and prepare it and to trust them with, with what they've done with my meal. When it comes to true and living Christianity, religious leaders have to be very careful about the recipes they use to catch and to feed the flock. The main ingredients of true Christian religion are similar because they come from the same cookbook. They are established essential ingredients in the bread of life. Let me tell you what they are. Uh, they are faith. They are spiritual rebirth. They are love. They are um, worship and worshiping the Lord. And they are reading and hearing the Lord's word. Perhaps the most dominant ingredient in the Christian faith, in the Christian walk, is faith. But there is an element to the Lord's church that if it's missing or if it's been replaced by something else, it makes for an altogether different religion. This singular Christian ingredient is grace. In order to truly understand grace, we need to look first at God's moral law. Did you know that there are two ways to, to get to heaven, two ways to live with God? The first way is to perfectly obey God's moral law. That means that you never falter. You are perfect in keeping his moral law. You've never lied. You've never stolen. You've never lusted. You've never done anything that's against his moral law. That's way number one. Way number two is by His grace. What He has given you as a free gift through faith on His Son. The first way, the moral law, is impossible for human beings. Nobody can perfectly obey God's moral law. Not you, not your pastor, not your bishop, not the Pope, and not your prophet. They do not and have not obeyed God's moral law. All have, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the scriptures say. This makes the second way the only viable alternative, and that is God's grace. God's law is perfect, it's perpetual, it's holy, it's spiritual, it's broad, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It was perfect. And if it could have saved people, it would have, there, and there would have been no need for Jesus Christ. Listen to this scripture now. Listen carefully. Galatians 3.21 If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given them that believe. God gave the children of Israel under the old covenant his moral law and they could not abide it. They failed to follow it. So even though God's perfect law was holy, mankind was not able to obey it. What did God do? He sent his son, God incarnate, who obeyed perfectly God's moral law and he fulfilled it. And we are now through our faith by him saved by God's grace. If the law cannot save us, and this is an important point, listening audience, if the law cannot save us, then no part of the law is necessary regarding your salvation. 
if the law cannot save you, that means if you can't follow it, then no other part of the law is necessary for your salvation. All right? It is either the law of God that saves you or it is his grace. Listen to this. Listen, Romans 11:6. Listen closely to this. And if by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be works, then it be no more grace. Otherwise, work is not work. It's plainly evident throughout all of Scripture that you're either saved by God's grace or you're saved by your own works. But if it's works, it's not God's grace. And if it's grace, it's not your works. You choose what's going to save you. If you believe it's your works, I wish you good luck. And when you return to him, you're going to be sadly disappointed because you've failed all along. In other words, if it was works, we are saved by works. And if it's grace, then it's grace, period. It is not both. So what does it mean to be saved by grace? It means that our salvation is not based on our ability. Our, it's not based on our good heart. It's not based on our tithing or our abstinence from alcohol or tobacco or from immorality. Our salvation is not based on our purity because we're not pure and we never have been. Our salvation is completely the result of God's mercy, moreover, his grace. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Romans 9, 16. It, salvation, is not of them that willeth. That means it doesn't come because we want it and we will it. Nor of him that runneth. It's not because we're trying so hard and we're working so hard to get our salvation right. But of God that showeth mercy. Our salvation is of God that shows mercy and it is by grace that you are saved. Instead of banishing all of his disobedient creations in, uh, from his presence, he offered another way, even Jesus Christ. And with that comes grace, the grace of God. A simplified and kind of crude way, it's an acronym for understanding the meaning of grace, is now at the bottom of the screen, or hopefully will be. And it says, God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ came and fulfilled the law, and God pours out his riches upon us, unsubstantiated by our righteousness or our good works. It's substantiated by our faith in him who, who was the author and finisher of our faith. Justice it means getting what we deserve. As sinners, we deserve death and we deserve banishment. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. But grace means not getting... Grace means getting what we don't deserve. And I hope you understand the difference between those three. Let's read in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, so we can understand how we are saved by grace. Verse 1, Ephesians, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in past time ye walked according to the course of this world, and the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires in the flesh of our mind. So it's talking about we walked according to the flesh at one time, all of us. Okay? The LDS view of life is very different indeed. It maintains that we were born children of God, that we were good and worthy and righteous. But the Bible teaches that we were born children of wrath. There's a big difference when it comes to that. Children of God or children of wrath. That we, the Bible teaches that we operated by our flesh and our minds, and we needed to be re reborn. Let's read on in Ephesians, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So while we were spiritually dead in sins, God, in his mercy and grace, provided us with Jesus. We have nothing to do to merit this. We were in sin. And out of his grace, he gave us this perfect gift that we didn't deserve. Do you understand what his grace means? Why did God give us this gift? 
because he could not get us back or he could not get us to him any other way. It reads in verse 7, The kindness toward us through Jesus Christ, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For ye are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, there, here is where some religions start messing around with God's recipe, of, especially in Christianity. They take the simple message of God's grace, meaning God gives us something we don't deserve, salvation, and they add to it. They redefine it. They alter the simplicity of this message in order to fit their doctrines, their religion, and their ways. They add to the ingredients saying, but we have things we need to do. We have to be baptized. We have to have the endowment. We have to be sealed to a spouse. We have to endure to the end. We have to do this and this and this, and then we'll be saved. This is hogwash. This is religion. And it's a recipe for disaster when it comes to your relationship with God. In the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25-23, it reads, Mormons will recognize this, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. This, my friends, is a bad ingredient. This is not part of God's recipe. Why? Because it takes salvation by grace and it attempts to make it by grace and works, by faith and the law. This is impossible and it is against what the Bible says. Listen to Romans 6, 11, 16 one more time. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it by works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. To say we are saved by grace and works is akin to saying that a person is pregnant and not pregnant. That they are right and that they are wrong. That they are dead and that they are alive. It's not either. It can't be either. It is not both. Grace is grace, a free, unmerited gift given without our deserving it by God. Why isn't grace preached in the LDS church? Let me give you four reasons. First, it begins with a faulty impression of who God is. When you believe that God is the ultimate source of power and he is everything and he has no beginning or end and he wasn't created, you are going to have to rely on his grace to return to him because your works will mean nothing to him in the scope of things. But if you believe in a God who was created, who has a father, who has a father, who has a father, if you believe in a God who was once a man, then your works are going to, you're going to constantly be working for Godhood. And so therefore, uh, the, uh, the idea of grace is completely lost. And you never hear grace mentioned in the LDS church. Second, it's because of the LDS idea of who man is. Latter-day Saints believe they are God's children from the get-go. God's in embryo. This places them in a position of needing to be perfect, of needing to be great, of needing to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, which is taken out of context biblically. To Christian, man is but a creation, a creature. Man is dust who must rely on God to regenerate him into a child of God. The third reason is they don't comprehend who Jesus is. If Latter-day Saints believe Jesus is Satan's spiritual brother, then they have a brother who they can follow after in his example and walk perfectly. And they can be just like Jesus, my elder brother, they call him. But if you understand that Jesus was God incarnate and that you cannot do what Jesus did, and that you are going to rely on his mercy, his love, his regeneration to give you a new life, and then you have a, a, a chance to do some of the things like him, then you'll understand grace. But as long as he's your spiritual brother, you'll never get it. Finally, the fourth reason is that preaching grace does not often help a religion. Often there are people who are lazy. When you preach works, you get people to do a lot more. You get a lot more participation. You get a lot more activity. You get people doing things. It burns them out. It kills their spirit. But you'll get people active because they believe they're saved by their own merits. 
But I want to say this regarding, in closing, regarding what, what grace really does to the heart of somebody. I want you to listen to Paul, and then we're going to go to the phone lines. He says in 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The whole meaning was Paul, when he was under the law, he did everything he could. And he says right here, when he came to know grace, when he understood God's grace and the freedom and liberty he had, he labored more abundantly than they all, according to the God's grace that was in him. Let's go to the phone lines. We have John in Midvale on line one. John is a first-time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. John, I like your show, and you may have touched on uh, part of my question about organized religion, but I need to deviate a little. I'm a Catholic, and I would like to know what you think of Catholics, since you were probably indoctrinated as a young Mormon that Catholicism is the whore of Babylon. Yeah. Now, why, my question is, if, if this is so, um, did they feel threatened by the Catholics? No. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe some do. And uh, maybe because Catholicism is such a world superpower and maybe Mormonism is striving to be that. So maybe there's some threats there. But uh, they believe that, uh, yes, McConkie was the one who propagated that. They've since taken it out of Mormon doctrine. But I want you to know, I personally, even though I was uh, indoctrinated too to believe that, um, that I believe that there are Catholics who are, are saved and there are Catholics who are not. And I believe there are Baptists who are saved and Baptists who are not. And uh, Mormons who are and Mormons who are not. Well, we all have mavericks in every religion. And, and I, I strongly think that there are some mavericks in, with the general authorities, too. Do you actually believe that all the general authorities believe in what they preach? Oh. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a two-part question, but do you actually believe that, that? Or is this some sort of a power struggle like there are in other religions? I, th I think it's a, a, a power struggle, but that's just my opinion. But yeah, I think it's a power struggle. You do? Okay. Yeah. Hey, you've been watching? Thanks for, for watching, John, and call us back. I enjoy your show. It's been great. It's been nice watching. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks, Sean. Okay, thank you. We are going to Douglas. Douglas, who has often something to say. Douglas from Murray. Hey! I wanted to touch on the different uh, doctrines that the Mormon Church believes in that even in other Christian religions are terribly out of context, unbiblical, because they are the doctrines that accompany us before we're ever here on earth. The council meeting in heaven where we were with our elder brothers, right. Lucifer and Jesus Christ, uh, we know that Lucifer was a fallen angel, right. that a third of the host of heavens were thrown out with him. That's in Ezekiel 37, 38 somewhere. Talks about Lucifer and who he was, a fallen angel. Yeah. The Mormons believe in the law of progression, that God the Father was a man of flesh and blood, yep. that he was once just a man, and that we can progress someday to be a God just like he is. Right. And so, yeah, there are so many, as many as four or five of these major ingredients that you're talking about yeah. that really predate us ever coming to the earth. We, as Christians, and as someone who was once a Mormon for 53 years, I now believe that we were created and God breathed life into us in the womb of our mother, and that's the first we ever existed. I believe that, too. Everything else is just out of context and unbiblical. It is. You're right, Doug. And, of course, we appreciate Doug's comments. Always full of passion and very informative. Doug, thanks for calling, brother. Yeah, you have a wonderful evening, and I really enjoyed your program. Thanks so much. Thanks for watching and calling. All right, we're going to Nat Natalene, uh, line four. It doesn't say that Natalene's a first-time caller, but I don't remember this name. So, Natalene, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, Sean. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? My name, my name is Natalina, and I'm a first caller. Uh -huh. And you know what? I just, I just started watching your show earlier today. Uh -huh. And you had mentioned some about that Mormons believe in three, there's a three heavens. 
And my question to you is, and I do have a question to you too. My question is, what, I mean, what do you believe? I mean, when we die, where do we go? What do Mormons believe or what do Christians what believe? What they believe and what do you believe? When we die, where do we go? Well, because I, I heard that Mormons believe when we die, we go to there's three heavens. We either go to heaven one or two or three. So I'm confused. I, have, I mean, well, maybe you know. Well, if you mean immediately, uh, Mormons don't believe that you're going to receive your reward until after the resurrection. And so they don't believe you're going to go immediately to the celestial kingdom. Uh, however, they do believe you're going to go to paradise um, or you're going to go to prison. You're going to go to one of those two places. And if you go to spirit prison, it's because you didn't accept the LDS version of the gospel. And you will have in spirit prison a chance to accept it if you didn't have a chance to accept it here on earth. If you go to spirit paradise, you're going to uh, rest there with God and Jesus. And then you're going to wait till the final judgment where you'll be resurrected. And then you're going to get one of your three degrees of glory. Uh, if you're a Christian, we believe you're either in hell or you are in uh, absent in the body, present with the Lord in heaven. So it's one or the other according to the biblical understanding. The Mormons, of course, have some additional thoughts on uh, what goes on. It's really interesting. Almost everything that is uh, biblically set forth, the LDS have a or slightly uh, altered or twisted or magnified view of what it is. Okay, but what do you believe? What do we? I know? believe the Christian view that when you die, you are either in uh, heaven or you are in hell. Okay. I okay. think Jesus' parables uh, reflect that. I think that what he did when he died and he went and uh, preached to the spirits in prison reflects that. I think uh, Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom reflects that, and the scriptures themselves do. Shawnee, I also have a question. Do you have like a verse from the Bible to back that up that we, when we die, we either go to heaven or hell? Do you have? A you know what? You need to email me because I'm not a Bible answer man, and and those of you who watch the show know that I can recollect concepts. And in some scriptures I can, but I can give you the actual verse if you want to either email me or if you want to, uh, if you want to uh, wait till next week, I'll give you the verse next time. Okay, thank you. All right, you take care. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we're going to Diana and Sandy on line one. Diana, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, I'm really, really enjoying your show tonight. Oh, good. And then... Um, I heard a paraphrase of kind of what you're talking about. Grace mixed with anything else is not grace. And you've said it, but I thought that I'd say it again. Grace mixed with anything else is not grace. grace. Beautiful. Love it. Okay. And then also, um, Satan's way is to dilute or pollute God's word. Uh, That's another way to say what you're saying. I like that. One of my favorite Bible verses uh -huh. is Isaiah 64, 6. Should I read it? Yeah. Okay. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Oh, beautiful. So beautiful. I really, really appreciate your program tonight, and especially a couple of weeks ago um, when you did the program on the Bible. It was, it's great. Thank you so much, and thanks for watching. Okay. Thanks for your input. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. We have Michael from Orem on line two. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing, Sean Aaron McCartney? Hey, I'm doing well. You know my middle name, so you must know me. I wrote you a couple of letters. You did? Yes, I hope you got them. Uh, oh, wait, Michael. Let me see. Well, go ahead. Tell me. Anyway, just wanted to say keep pulling them out of the fire, brother. I'll try, Michael. You're doing a good work for God. Thanks so much for your uh, support. I really appreciate it. You bet, and uh, keep that cup full, brother. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, I've got one scripture for you to look at. It's 2 Peter 3. Okay. 17 and 18. Okay, will you read it? Sure. Okay. Since you have been forewarned about this, dear friends, be careful that you do not come to the point of losing the firm ground that you are standing on carried away by the errors of unprincipled people. Instead, continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory in time and eternity. 
That is, a, that is a great, you know what, I have that growing grace to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ underlined. And, that, and I don't have a lot underlined in this Bible, and that's a great verse. So I appreciate you sharing with it, Michael. All right, brother, keep pulling them out of the fire. All right, man, you take care. Love you, man. Love you too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line three, Randy in Taylorsville. Randy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. How about you? Oh, not bad. Uh, long day at work, you know. Yeah, sorry. Ah, it's all good. I'd just uh, like to say something on the grace thing. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, we're, we're saved by grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, the law, the law of God, we were saved from the curse, but we keep the law because it's good. Yeah, absolutely. We try our best to keep the law because it's good. And we are fortified with the ability to keep the law through our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, that would be part two of the grace message. Yes, we do keep the law. But part one is we're saved by His grace. Yeah, absolutely. The blood is, the, that's, that's the bottom line. That's all about the blood. But. It is, Randy. I appreciate that clarification. All right. You have a good day and uh, keep up the good work, brother. Thanks a lot, man. You take care and don't work too hard tomorrow. Oh, yeah. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Dave, first-time caller from Salt Lake City on line two. Dave. Hey, Sean. Love your show. Thanks. Uh, my story is uh, very similar to yours. Um, you know, before I uh, found God and, and uh, being saved through the grace of Jesus Christ, and I knew topic of grace. It goes to the song Amazing Grace, which is probably one of the world's most well-known, number one favorite songs. I mean, it's even sung in China. Wow. And the interesting thing about that song is that you will not find that song, nor was it ever in the LDS hymn book. No. Yeah, you're right. Not ever in the LDS hymn book. And, uh, you know, if any song should be in there, don't you think uh, Amazing Grace would have... Grace. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would love to see that there. You know, you know what? Know what? My uh, my kids have sung "Amazing Grace" in uh, the LDS church, and uh, but it didn't come out of one of their hymn books, though. Oh no, it didn't. And no, it didn't. Not at all. That's a good point, though. Well, Sean, listen, I love the show, and you keep up the good work. God bless you and your family. Thanks for the insights. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, our lines are full. The operators are going through them. Have a couple comments to cover. One regarding grace. I uh, want you to know that uh, uh, Mormon theology says grace is God's enabling power to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation after we have expended our best efforts. And the reference from that was Doctrine and Covenant Student Manual. Just to let you know. Another quote on grace is Spencer W. Kimball said that one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved by the grace of God. That belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation. That's from Spencer W. Kimball and he quotes Jane Talmadge in a study of the Articles of Faith printed in 1977. So as far as grace goes, they're not really too big on it. All right, let's go to Linda in Brigham City, line one. Brigham, you're on heart. I mean, Linda, you're on heart of the matter. Hi, Sean. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. First, I just want to tell you, I, when I get the chance to see your show, I really enjoy watching it. I love the different takes that you have on things. Oh, good. Um, just to give you a little background, I was raised in the LDS church. Uh-huh. And by the time I was 12, not only did I not believe in the church, I absolutely stopped believing in the existence of God himself. Yeah, that happens a lot, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it does. Um, I'm a recovering addict, and I am back in the church, and I fully believe in it. Uh -huh. My question tonight, Sean, is when you were talking about works and grace of God, now don't get me wrong, I absolutely rely upon the grace of God to get me through each and every day because without his grace and his love I couldn't do it good I couldn't get up in the mornings without him good sorry Sean it's okay but the way you had come across earlier it was like you could be the most horrible person in the world 
and at the very last moment of your life, you could say, I believe, please accept me, and you would be forgiven, and you would be saved, yeah. and I got to think that you got to do something yeah. to show the Lord after you've accepted him into your heart, yeah. and after he knows that you love him with all of your heart and soul, that you've got to do something to help your fellow man, or what's the point? Well, let me, let me tell you this. It isn't what you do for your fellow man that saves you. Remember the thief on the cross uh, sitting there ready to die, had no opportunity to do anything except acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And he did nothing except probably his whole life live horrible, live horribly. So it makes sense to us as men and women that a life full of good efforts and works are really going to get us further with God where our standing with Him than not. But the important thing to remember is that it's what Jesus did on this earth. And it's His righteousness and His perfect works that not only fulfilled the law, but are imputed to you when you have faith in Him. And you are made righteous and worthy through your faith. The scriptures say that you cannot please God unless, you, unless by faith. When you think about it, God, the great creator, having done everything in all the universes and keeping them in orbit and doing everything from the smallest molecule to the biggest things in the world, what are you going to do to make him pleased with you, to earn your way? But it was him coming down, his son coming down, and what he did for you and your faith on him, it's what, it's what makes you righteous before the Father. And it's that faith. Now, the ways of a man seem right unto us, but they lead to death. Faith is what does it, and it's his grace that saves you. Now, let me go one step further. Once you've accepted Jesus, and once you have that faith, by golly, you're going to work. Let me tell you, I've worked harder as a Christian for what I believe in in Jesus than I ever did as an active Latter-day Saint. I work like a dog because I love the Lord for what he's done for me, pulling me out of the fire and helping me know him. So it is faith first and faith only by his grace that you're saved. And then your works will follow. And, and I believe that. I believe you've, you've, got to have an abs you've got to have that change of heart. You've got to have the Lord yeah. come into your heart. And I don't care if you prof profess to be Lutheran, Christian, LDS, Buddhist. It doesn't matter. You've got to have the Lord come into your heart, yeah. or it doesn't really matter what you do. Yeah. Sean, I had just one other comment for yeah. you. Yes. I have a wonderful book, and it's called Believing Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I forget who it's written by, but it's not... It, it takes the concept of believing in Christ as opposed to believing what he has told us and what he has taught us. And I'd just like to, to hear your take on the difference in that little bit of a concept between believing in him and believing him. Well, uh, the semantics, it doesn't really register strongly with me as, as to a difference. I have to really think about it. If you want to email me, uh, give me let me give you t some time to thought. But I don't have a, a, a really profound difference in my head right now, semantically, between believing him and believing in him. To me, believing in him, believing him, believing in what he said, believing in what he did, it's all him. And so it all plays into uh, what we call faith. Okay. All right. Thank you for watching. And uh, I'd love to send you my book. And uh, keep on going. It sounds like you have uh, really made progress in your, in your walk with the Lord. And uh, praise God. Praise God, John. Thanks, Thanks so much. Good time. Okay, bye, -bye. bye. We have Nathan online too, uh, asking, uh, talking to me about the book. Nathan. Hello, Sean. Hi. Right, I read your book. I got it at Heart in the Park. Okay. And, uh, I, and I also, before I ask the two questions, wanted to say, you know, I feel like um, I really want to tell you and your, uh, your people there how grateful I am because I, I was raised LDS. I was a... I was a back east Mormon, came out here to go to BYU, and, uh, you know, after five or six years, um, you know, I just kind of hit a bottom, things weren't working, and you all, uh, you know, I, I've, I've listened to your, I've read your book, gleaned a lot of information from that, and I, uh, I took your advice on, on the church to go to the, with the pastor, and that's been really good for me. Awesome. 
and I also uh, talked to a pastor there at the church, I mean at the heart of the park, who really, you know, made me realize that the work is finished. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Jesus has already done it. He is the high priest. We don't need any more high priests. We become a priesthood holder by, by faith in him and believing Amen. him. We don't need any of the other stuff. And it really, really struck with me that, you know, there's no more running on a, on a treadmill. It's been finished. The work's been done. Fantastic. Nathan. And the, uh, the, when I was reading your book, there was a couple things that kind of struck me. Uh, one was is you really emphasized being excommunicated over taking your name off the uh, records. Yeah. And I wondered why was that? Well, I was a sinner, first of all, and, I, and it's important for me to reach out to Latter-day Saints who are sinners. And I don't mean uh, necessarily outwardly sinning, but sinners in their hearts. Uh, a lot of people who leave the church uh, leave because um, they have sinned and they become embittered and they begin to really attack with different things. And I want Latter-day Saints to know that the status of being a sinner is held by everyone. And I'm not ashamed of having been a sinner uh, I'm ashamed of the sins, but having acknowledged that I was a sinner was the first step into realizing I needed a Savior. And that's really important when it comes to Latter-day Saints, knowing where they are with God, that they are a sinner, and they all deserve excommunication, in my opinion. That's really going to make them mad, but I believe it. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, um, what else? Okay, and the other question I had was, you, your, your thesis of your book, or one of the uh, uh, meanings of your book, is that a Mormon could become a born-again Christian and still be an active LDS person. Yeah. And I found that, you know, I started, um, uh, you know, kind of becoming, you know, really believing the gospel as explained in the New Testament. And I kind of became, uh, you know, sort of a wolf in sheep, uh, sheep's clothing at yeah. church. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I, I you know, and I was just thinking, is that really a realistic model to, to tell people? No, it really isn't. But I'll tell you why I do it. The, the last thing a, a Latter-day Saint wants to hear, and I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here, but is, is you got to leave the Mormon church right now. I mean, that's the last thing active members of the church want to hear. So I don't make that an issue, and I, and I tell them, look, if you want to come to know the Lord, give him a chance, turn your life over to him, be born again. And if you want to stay uh, LDS and the Lord has led you to do it, by golly, continue to do it. Because I don't want that to be an arguing point. I know from experience that when I came to know the Lord, he led me out and he leads most out. If he decides to lead somebody in, that's the Lord's business, not mine. But I, I'm not going to make, you got to get out of that right now, the topic of my ministry. I want Jesus and rebirth and turning your life over to him as your high priest, like you mentioned, Nathan, to be the most important part and everything else I leave up to God. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that does, uh, I think that's a good idea. The, uh, one last comment before I let you go. Yeah. Um, Brigham Young University, uh, back in the early 80s or late 80s or something, there was a little bit of a movement students had uh, with a kind of a, a little buzzword called, you know, developing a personal relationship with Christ. Yeah. I remember hearing that, you know, one of the apostles, I think it was McConkie, came out there and really uh, said, you know, that's not the way to go. Do you have any... Do you, do you remember that all at all? Yeah, or? it was McConkie. I think it was 82. He spoke at the Marriott Center. That's where he lambasted George Pace for writing a book about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Anybody who's interested should read the talk that McConkie gave in response to George Pace's book about uh, having a relationship with Christ because McConkie just went off saying, we do not, in fact, that's a quote, we do not worship Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, uh, biblically, McConkie was in left field, uh, like he is on many other things, and I, I was uh, actually in the MTC when he gave that talk against George Pace, and remember it vividly. So uh, yes, uh, that was McConkie, I think it was 82, at the Marriott Center in response to his book. Okay, and, and what, yeah, we're, we're, everybody's quoting scriptures tonight, I just wanted to say that Daniel 2, where they describe the stone cut from the mountain without hands yeah. really does follow the, the model, the gospel as taught by Paul and the other New Testament writers because it's all about your relationship with Christ, believing him, and it's all, you know, it's not filtered through human hands. That's right. And you know what, Nathan, that's a great point because 
Uh, Jesus is always referred to as the rock in scripture or a, he is the rock. And yet when it talks about the stone being cut out of the mountain without hands and Daniel, Gordon B. Hinckley has said that that stone will roll forth and that is the church. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And that's a real big difference right there between Mormon theology and Christian. Mormon says church, Christians say Christ. All right. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hey, congratulations. Bye-bye. We got Mike in Orem, line three, first-time caller. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. How's it going today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I had a question. I was watching your show earlier, just flipping through channels, and uh, you said something that kind of caught me as interesting. Um, I believe you said something along the lines of grace is a free gift of God, which I do believe in. Um, and the, no works are needed whatsoever. That It's given to everyone. Free of well, faith. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, his grace is... Well, his grace comes in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, his grace is bestowed upon the entire uh, earth because of the beautiful world he, he created for us yes. and, the, the, and all the things. So, I mean, life itself is part of his grace. There are many aspects of God's grace, but salvation, you're right, it's not by any merit on our, on our part. Well, then how do you receive salvation? You receive salvation when God offers it by His grace. So how do you actually take it when God offers it? You accept it? How do you, how do you accept it? Yeah, how do you accept it? How do you say, alright? You confess all right, well, with your mouth, you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, and you confess with your mouth that you are a sinner and you need his love, and, and you embrace his life, and you want him to take it over. And there's a bunch of different methods. I'm not going to give you an exact for, formula. Yeah, but, I know. Yeah, but the scriptures talk about those things, and that's how you embrace the gift of, of uh, salvation. But wouldn't that... In the act- Would that be a work? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, wouldn't that be a work in of, a, of itself? Not okay. necessarily going through baptism and things like that, but in the very act of accepting Christ, you're doing the work... I think to... I think that that's an LDS construct that I've heard before, but I'll tell you, for me to say, you know, Lord, I resign myself to you, it was no work at all. It was a relief. I didn't have to sweat. I had to say the words or think the words in my heart and say them. Uh, as far as a work, I don't really think so. When we're talking about works, we're talking about obedience to the law, and we're talking about your righteousness, and then the works that come along with that in legalistic institutions. We're not talking about accepting him by faith and faith being a, a literal work. I don't think it really translates. I, I just will argue with you on that. All right. Well, I guess we'd have to agree or disagree on that point of view. All right, brother. All right. Good to talk to All you. Right. Thanks for calling. Thank you. All right. We're going to Tibby in Nampa, Idaho. Tibby, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. I just had a quick comment for you. Yes. Um, I've been a Christian since I was five, and uh-huh. my heart just goes out to the Mormon uh-huh. people. And um, I just had a thought a while back about them when I was just meditating on the scriptures. And I was wondering if what you thought, if maybe God has purposely um, blinded them from the truth. It seems like their doctrine is you know, misled, but there's some things that are really, you know, pretty close. Uh-huh. Seems like they're just not quite getting it, uh-huh. the whole picture, obviously. But I wonder what you thought um, they will think when the rapture happens and they're not taken. Well, what do you think? Uh, one, I don't know if all won't be taken. I believe that there are Mormons who do have a relationship with Christ. But uh, what do you think the reason is that they don't embrace the uh, Christian uh, biblical gospel. Um, I that's what I don't know. I believe personally. I've been working on kind of an outline for a book on this. I believe bottom line. This will probably elicit all kinds of hate mail. Bottom line, I believe it's pride, and I believe that they have great pride in their ability to organize and to work and to really obey a lot of commandments and to live clean lives and they're self-sufficient. The word self-sufficient is bannered around a lot. And I believe they have such a superpower of an organization and they're debt-free that uh, bottom line, they uh, are proud. And I think that pride blinds them from the gospel truths that they're sinners and they need to be reborn through Jesus Christ. But that's my take, Tibby. Uh, The Lord knows uh, everything and that's just how I feel about it. 
I think that he he's the only one that really knows. And You're probably right. That could be right, and I could be wrong, but um, I just pray for the people that, you know, they will come to know the truth. Amen. I thank you for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, we gotta, we're going to go to uh, some final thoughts uh, regarding grace. I want you to think of a relationship in a marriage. What is going to bring about the best relationship in that marriage? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it the belief that you have to accomplish a number of things in that relationship in order to keep your marriage uh, a going? Or would love, unconditional love, be the thing that really glues a good marriage together? What would motivate you more? Someone who loves you unconditionally and then serves you out of that love, or somebody who's afraid of you, or makes you feel guilty, or vice versa? I propose to you that fear does work in relationships. It works in religion. Guilt works in relationships. It works in religion. But in the relationship with God, when you understand the grace that he pours out upon you just for whatever reason he does, but he pours it out upon you, the love you have in response to him, it makes all the difference in the relationship. It makes doing for him not work at all. And that's the difference between works and grace. It's the difference between the law and faith. Saved by faith, saved by works. The real argument, is it grace or is it the law? I want to close really quickly by reading this. I've said it before. The law demands, grace gives. The law says do, grace says believe. The law exacts, grace bestows. The law says work, grace says rest. The law threatens, announcing a curse. Grace entreats, announcing a blessing. The law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst. The law says, do and thou shalt live. Grace says, live in Christ and thou shalt do. The law reveals the true character of God. The law reveals the true weakness of man. The law was never meant to save. You haven't kept the law. You are guilty of breaking the law. And despite all your goodness and good works, you deserve hell. The law sets forth what man ought to be, but grace is there for you. Go to your father. Ask him for it. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start 